When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. We're so glad that you chose to hang out with us today. Disclaimer, we here at Stuff They Don't Want You To Know do not accept tips due to standing policies on objectivity, plus we're not policies. Politicians. That sounds snarky. <laughs> You'll see why. <laughs> Correct. Uh, we are. Uh, <laughs> there's a service charge associated with you listening to this show. And that service charge is your personal data. Uh, so we have a lot of fellow listeners from around the world these days. We're very, very lucky uh, to to be part of this community. And tonight's episode might come as a bit of a surprise to our international community. If you haven't spent time in the United States, you're going to be really freaked out by this one. We are here to explore something thoroughly confusing, an intergenerational, often irritating, sometimes life-saving, and quite possibly conspiratorial concept known as tipping. Uh, when's When's the last time you guys paid a tip? Oh, gosh. I mean, anytime I order, you know, Uber Eats or take a lift or, you know, go to a restaurant, get a haircut. I mean, it's just kind of become this very, very, very expected thing. And I don't want someone to make a face. Uh, so I, I, I always try to tip, you know, above and beyond what's expected. You feel social pressure. No. I do. I do. What about you, Matt? Yeah, it's so common. Literally, anytime there's a transaction when it's not an automated kiosk, 
right? Or some something where there's no human being involved, there's probably a tip. You don't tip your ATM? Wow. Hell dude. no. Hell wow. no. <laughs> you don't give you don't give your 20% to Wells Fargo. Anyway, here we're getting into it. Here are the facts. Okay, what is tipping for anyone who doesn't know? Um tipping is tipping is kind of like a bribe, but it's not quite a bribe. Uh it's easily defined as the practice of providing some amount of compensation above the stated price for a product or service. That sounds kind of simple, right? It sounds that way. <laughs> it sounds like uh, a reward for a job well done, you know? Uh, and I think, you know, that was the initial intent, uh, but it has kind of morphed into something much, much different than that. Yeah, I mean, like, okay, uh, we used 20% just a second ago. Let's say... You're hanging out with some folks, um, you're at a happy hour, and you get a drink, right? You get your social drink, that's five bucks, let's call it, for the sake of math. The bill comes, you owe five bucks, what do you add? One dollar would be 20%, add one dollar. Yeah, all right, cool. You go on your merry way, uh, but it's deeper, deeper than that. We um, we have, again, a lot of international friends and contacts. And, uh, you know, you guys, whenever we talk to any of our friends who are not from the U.S. Uh, or have only visited the U.S. for some discreet amount of time, they usually cite a lot of confusing things. First off, honestly, they're like, What's the deal with the guns and the flags? Secondly, they're like, why do uh, why do the prices in the stores, right? In the convenience stores or the groceries or the supermarkets, why are they always more expensive? Why can't they just tell me the real cost on the shelf, right? Because of sales tax. That is really strange that there's not more tax included prices that just exist out in the world. That would make so much sense. But, but, well, actually, when we get into the psychology, it would make sense. Yeah. When we get into the psychology of tipping, there's the answer is right in front of us, right? I mean, I, for example, used to work at this music store, uh, and the owners um, had this pretty shady practice of marking all of the instruments that were for sale with what's called the list price, which is a price that nobody pays. And when you mark it with the list price, somebody's dumb enough to not know better, they will let them pay that. <laughs> that is absolutely a horrible thing to do because they could get it for, you know, a good percentage cheaper anywhere else. But it also gives them this wiggle room and this illusion of discount where they can be like, oh, no, I can't. We'll make you a special price on that. And then chances are the quote unquote special price is still going to be more than you'd pay, you know, if you ordered it online. So it's just it, it kind of gives this illusion of, uh, of of getting a deal. I think you're both right. Matt, I think you're talking about the uh, psychological anchoring uh, phenomenon, right? Like having something with a $12.99 instead of a 13 Well, right? yeah, there's, there's, there's that, but there's also just the concept of seeing a lower price, right? The sticker shock is a real thing, and it happens the moment your eyes see a number associated with a product or service, right? You then associate that product or service with that price. And historically, if your brain has made that connection, you know, multiple times, if that price is then higher somewhere else, you're going to think, oh, that's too high or, oh, wow, that's really low. 
And you know, it confuses a lot of people, not just folks visiting the United States, uh, but it confuses a lot of people who live in that country. The idea of like you're at a restaurant, it's kind of fancy restaurant. You want to order something that sounds delicious. And instead of a uh, dollar and cents price, you see the dreaded initialism MP. Market price, baby. Market price, baby. Roll the dice. Let's see how uh, how how profoundly you want to impress your date. Uh, what kind of fool's errand do you want to run? Okay, the big thing that people often report uh, visiting from abroad is confusion about tipping. Why is it so confusing? There's no real standing policy or law enforcing it. There is no there is no federal law that says you need to give $2 to the person parking your car, right? There's no federal law saying that you need to pay 20% above the price of your sandwich or your, you know, your latte or what have you. Instead, tipping is socially expected. It's a behavior that's cultural and often unexplained um, in in discrete, clear, concrete terms. It's become normalized over time, right? Like we've had these conversations off air. You can hear any number of people with the confidence, uh, the confidence and authority of the blissfully ignorant tell you that they know exactly how to tip where to tip and the intervening variables, right? Like, um, you know, what, what are the go-tos? What, what do we have as go-tos? Like 20% at a restaurant? 20%, you know, used to be sort of considered a, uh, an amount to reward excellent service. You know, 15% maybe used to be the standard, but now it really feels a lot more like 20% is the bare minimum. And even when you see those suggested tip amounts at the bottom, it usually starts at 20% and goes up to like 25 and 30 for the max. And that's for like a, you know, a dinner bill. But let's say you're drinking at a bar, you know, the more there is not always necessarily based on the entire tab. It might be some people might operate on a dollar per drink tip, you know, which doesn't necessarily equate to 20% of the entire tab. And you might just tip every other drink if you're paying cash, um, you know, and that's probably going to keep you from getting blackballed or treated like a pariah by, you know, the, the, the bar staff. And there's also the idea of paying rent for a table or a spot that you hear about. No, that's right. Uh, a thing that doesn't happen as often in the United States, but is quite common in parts of Europe, is that your price per item in a restaurant differs depending on whether you are ordering to sit down and drink or eat versus whether you're ordering to stand around and drinkery. It is included in that. Uh, it, it gets more complicated depending on the situation. I always think, whenever we talk about tipping, I always think about Quentin Tarantino's character in Reservoir Dogs, which, uh, who was he in that Oh, one? gosh. Is, is it the Steve Buscemi character, or is it the, um, the it's Harvey the Keitel don't tip, character? Don't tip guy. You know, like I remember this. Yeah, I just can't remember yeah. which mister it is. But, yeah, he, he goes on a whole screed about how he just doesn't believe that, you know, he should ever. He, he refuses to tip unless he is just wowed and, and treated like a like a king. 
I mean, we talked about this in previous listener mail segments. There are all sorts of purported guides to tipping in any number of situations and in panoply of situations, especially, you know, we've said it before. It's always fascinating to read guides to the United States for people from different countries. And they usually name guns. Shelf prices are weird. You got to know about tipping. Like, you, who, who do you not tip? You tip uh, bellhops. You tip Uber drivers or Lyft drivers. You tip to-go places. You tip hotel staff. You're moving. You tip moving companies, et cetera, et cetera. Hairdressers, someone, someone lines you up with a nice, you know, like a Nike swoosh mark in the back of your head, you know, you give them a little extra. But even that is interesting because it depends. Like, are they renting a chair at a salon or are you uh, paying them directly for their services? Like the it's such a gray area and the, tr- the lack of transparency in all of it, I think, is the problem. I think in general, none of us want to be cheap or deprive anybody of like what they are owed or any supplement that they need to get a living wage. But if you're getting like a three hundred dollar hair color job, some people might assume that the tip is sort of built into that since it's such a high price. And and if it's not, how are you supposed to know? And are you supposed to tip that full 20% on such a high ticket item, which amounts to like, you know, a 60 or $70 tip. Um, It just gets confusing. You know, and and like, do you tip for to go food if you're not actually being served at a table? I mean, if you're getting it delivered, of course, you're tipping a driver. But if you just show up and pick up your food, are you supposed to leave a tip? It's just kind of confusing. And I think, um, you know, we're all sort of in the same boat as to, you know, wh- what situations require what level of tip and and how do you make sure to walk away not looking like a schmuck? I mean, that you're talking about tip out, which is a little bit uh, a little bit of algebra. And we're in basic arithmetic now for people who who live in places like Japan where tipping's not really a thing. Or live in parts of the world where you just round up, right, and leave the change or leave the closest large denomination. The rule about tipping in the U.S., any actual rule only happens when an establishment privately imposes it. Like we've we've been to restaurants, Matt, Noel. Uh, Mission Control and Doc Holliday and I have been to restaurants where you you go there and they'll have a little bit of fine print on on the uh, on the restaurant faceplate where it says something like parties of X or more will have an automatic gratuity of Y percentage added to the bill. Right. Yeah. We've all seen that. Yeah, that's like a service charge. And, and there are also establishments that I think we've been to that call themselves tip-free establishments or a tip-free restaurant or something like that, where all of that 20%, 21%, whatever it is, is just added onto the price of food items. Mm-hmm. Right. And usually, usually also presented with some context. We pay our employees a living wage, which is super important to this conversation. I'm glad you said that. Like, okay, for a lot of people in the U.S., tipping is just one of those things, like you said, Nola, social more, which means normalized behavior, right? The opposite of a taboo. Uh, it is a more to tip. There's uh, there are all kinds of references to this culturally in the U.S. Uh, One of the most famous is if you can't afford to tip, 
you can't afford to go to the restaurant. Uh, and, and a lot of people agree with that. For others, it's an insidious cash grab. It's a way for the ownership class to siphon even more of your hard-earned money to support people just like you and accelerate the profit margin of a person who might not even show up to the restaurant they own. Uh, and I think most importantly for our purposes, because we do exercise empathy here, tipping is the primary means of income for so many people in the U.S. in particular. That's right. And we're going to get into the history of that and the kind of fraught nature of how we got to where we are now. But uh, at the end of the day, I think a big takeaway here from this conversation is just the fact that a more is not a law and it is not something that is guaranteed. So for those people that rely on that for their income, it's always kind of a roll of the dice, isn't it? You know, people can definitely, you know, have lucrative careers as servers in, you know, fancy restaurants, um, you know, through tips, but it's also kind of not guaranteed. Uh, and they, they, it doesn't seem like they get the same, uh, I don't know, um, protection, you know, as, as other types of workers. And stability. I think it's just interesting. Yeah. Stability. I think it's interesting how this entire sector that is such a, what you would consider to be a, uh, you know, critical sector of the economy and of society. Uh, these would be what you might consider, um, what was the word they used during the pandemic? Essential. Essential workers. workers are not guaranteed. And then also, like, what about fast food workers? There is no more to tip fast food workers. What about know? hairdressers? What about tattoo artists? What about exotic dancers, rideshare drivers, delivery services, restaurant workers? Uh, what, what about cooks in the restaurant? What about valets, et cetera, et cetera? When these folks get tips, we're definitely not buying Fabergé eggs. You know, we're not buying yachts. Over in, uh, you know, we're not even renting yachts, say these people. Uh, <laughs> we've never been to France. They're keeping the lights on. They might be saving for college. They might be saving for their kids' birthdays. They might be trying not to go bankrupt if a medical malady occurs, which is different from a moral malady. We'll get to it. These folks definitely need the money. They are definitely working to earn it. And now, by this point, oh, Matt, Paul. Every one of us listening tonight has probably already identified our respective stance on this phenomenon. And your opinion is, as we always say, your own. Honestly, a lot of folks are probably wondering why a show about critical thinking and conspiracies would bother to follow them to their favorite restaurant. Right? That's a good question. Mm -hmm. Well... We're going to tell you exactly why. Uh, tipping really has a, a very, very interesting and problematic history. It does not come from where you might think. Yeah, it has a sordid origin story. And there is indeed a conspiracy afoot. We'll pause for a word from our sponsor. Um, and then we'll return to what was once called, <laughs> in a beautiful pun, the land of the fee. 
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop. Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Here's where it gets crazy. The history of tipping is bonkers. It should disturb you. Uh, it, it should disturb you particularly in America, but its genesis should keep you up at night. Bad, bad stuff. Yeah, it uh, started back in the time of the Middle Ages in Europe when there were masters and servants and people who provided all kinds of services and goods to the masters who were then given pocket change in in exchange for all the work that they did, right? That's the Toss idea. a couple of coppers their way, you know, like, yeah, there you are, young, young lad. Uh, go, you know, go buy yourself something nice. There's an inherent condescending quality to it. Have a, have a shouldn't. I understand you have lost most, if not all, of your family to the plague. Thank you again for spit shining uh, the horse hooves and shoes. Here's a tuppence. God be with you. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in many ways that same, or let's say the descendant of that custom has become a customer 
at an establishment and the server, the worker, the whoever it is who is providing those same services, they are being paid by some employer, but the amount they're being paid and how much they depend on the tuppence or whatever it is that you give them, it hasn't changed that much. Garçon! <laughs> right, remember that's the old the old trope calling people garçon at garçon French restaurants? Right? Garçon means boy, which is why it's super offensive, and we hope you're not doing that because God knows Americans need better representation <laughs> abroad. Oh, got a reputation, earned it. Well, I think I think the most important thing here, though, too, is that the, the history of this is coming from a place of 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 one exercising one's superiority over another and saying, you know, I I deign to bestow upon you this, you know, um, this this pittance of a you know an amount of money. The uh, idea it is, being, it's it's small for me, it's life changing for you. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But it is, it's so interesting the way that relationship is, the customer and the server, the mm-hmm. person who is mm-hmm. in service to you. But ultimately, oh, it's so, oh, this is weird. Yeah, it's uncomfortable, Matt, for sure. I agree with you. I mean, the United States, though, used to be very anti-tipping. And that's something a lot of people don't know. When the colonists hung out at the, uh, I did, very dumb research on this, as you guys know. The colonists, when they were hanging out at the first tavern in the United States, which is in Boston, Cole's in from Samuel Cole, uh, before the U.S. was a thing, they almost certainly didn't tip. That was crazy European. They were anti-European. They were anti-monarchist. It just wasn't a thing. You got your, you know, like your grog or your oysters or whatever, and then you shut up. Uh, the U.S. had something like tipping as the well-to-do started to put the American Revolution behind them. And they would travel to the continent, capital C, to Europe, and they would see this this old uh, class system in action as restaurants were becoming um, more accessible, uh, even to the nouveau riche of uh, the U.S., and they would come back, these very well-to-do Americans, and they would say, well, like, I'm, I'm kind of like the, uh, you know, the Dutch or the Duchess of insert failed aristocracy here. So here you go. Here's a tip for you. Uh, it didn't become a real thing until after the U.S. Civil War. And here we got a shout out some excellent work by some excellent authors and journalists, one of them being Nina Martris. Uh, Nina Martris uh, walks through how tipping, when it first got over to the U.S., was considered deeply, deeply un-American to the New Republic. And here's a quote. Until the Civil War in America, there was no tipping. It was a European thing, but the Americans began to travel to Europe and brought this custom back. At the same time, immigrants were coming to America by the boatload from Europe, most of them poor, and had been working in Europe and were used to the tipping system. So in every way, it was seen as a European import, and there was huge opposition to it because of its feudal nature. Mm -hmm. That feudal nature, again, is 
kind of a history of this condescension, this uh, idea that if you're tipping somebody, you are rendering them or you are identifying them as your uh, your underling, you know, someone that's inferior to you. Um, the article goes on referring to uh, identifying your class, you know, um, your social and economic inferior is what you're identifying those you are tipping as. So it was a caste bound system and it was an old world custom and it reeked of feudalism, like you said, Matt. It was called servile, and it was called a bribe. It was called a moral malady. It was called blackmail. It was called flunkyism, and people uh, rallied against it until they found a reason to, <laughs> to have it benefit them. Until, that is, the wake of the Civil War. Emancipation happens on paper, right? It doesn't really happen, uh, but it happens on paper, and suddenly the U.S. is chock full of millions of formerly enslaved people. Every imaginable demographic of age or gender. And these folks found themselves theoretically free, but they had had no access to education. People had been murdered for the crime of literacy until quite, quite recently, right? And uh, they also had no jobs, no nepotism, no career prospects, no land, no generational wealth. The odds were very much by design against these people. And around this time, restaurateurs begin hiring uh, these folks as workers, uh, overwhelmingly hiring black women as workers and said, hey, we don't have to pay these people at all. Instead, we can do what our European folks told us about earlier, we can give, we can put upon them the strange commission practice of tips and your wages as they are, will entirely be the Nobel, the noble largesse, right? Of <laughs> like the largesse of the customer. Again, to Matt's point, like putting, putting the customer as the Lord and instituting this microcosmic feudal system every time someone pays for food. And it, it's worse in the rail stations or the railroad industry as well. I mean, I can't help but think of this as like another loophole of getting around the abolition of slavery you know, in the same way that prison labor is. And police you know? forces, yeah. Yeah, there's no question about it. Like, okay, well, now we have this new workforce, quote unquote. Um, we're used to not paying them because they were literally, you know, slaves before. So now what can we do to kind of pay them as little as possible and pass on whatever small amount they do get paid to somebody else? Uh, and yeah, your point about the rail system, Ben, is interesting because it also points out this sort of sort of new middle class, like folks that couldn't, like you said, the folks that maybe went to Europe and they could afford to go to Europe, but they did not possess the same wealth as those dukes and duchesses. So they were sort of like living above their means or sort of playing in this space, but they didn't actually occupy it in the same way as George Pullman, who's the creator of the Pullman Car Company, created this genius idea of these first class train carriages that were 
complete with servants, you know, that were uh, called porters um, that, you know, I think we all know the trope of the porter, someone that, uh, you know, greets you with a smile, handles your baggage, um, you know, makes your bed, um, tells you your kids a little joke or whatever and, and answers when you when you call. Uh, not something that these people could afford to have on staff, but they could live in that world for a brief time. Right. Yeah. So let's I'm glad you've introduced George Pullman. George Pullman creates the Pullman Car Company, which later, against his uh, against his wishes, I imagine, uh, leads to the formation of the first black labor union in these United States. This is the late 1800s, post-Civil War era, and he designs what you can think of as a first-class train carriage. Before Pullman cars, uh, trains were super duper uncomfortable unless you were the guy unless you were the monopoly man who owned the train system and had your own custom built car the equivalent the 1800s equivalent of a private jet uh he said look we got this middle class coming up they can't travel like the decayed aristocracy of Europe, they probably cannot afford to have a household staff or a servant at home, but we can weaponize their aspiration. We can give them that experience for the time it takes them to go from one city to the next. You know, we'll have these, we'll have these porters and they will be your personal assistant during your time on a Pullman car. Uh, you can live that fake life by train. And the U.S. has always been, if nothing else, a horrifically aspirational endeavor, right? Like, that's why Vegas exists. Yeah, and so that's why they call it the American dream, not the American reality. It's all incredibly aspirational and based on images uh, that we are sort of sold in this idea that we deserve this. You know, we belong here in this class. We deserve to have all of these nice things. But, and you know, as I as I always like to point out. It's the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> Matt, you and I have been talking about that for many years. Uh, Pullman, super racist when he uh, hires these porters. Uh, this is well before there were federal protections uh, about discriminating on race, religion, ethnicity, and so on. And it's an unpleasant thing to say. None of us are happy to report this, but these are the facts. Uh, Pullman only hired black men as porters. George Pullman only hired black men and specifically black men from the American South because he believed, and he's on record saying this, he believed that during the age, uh, during the era of slavery, plantations and the brutal system of chattel slavery had, quote, trained these men to be more pleasing more obsequious to customers. Now, he did pay him a wage. He paid him $27.50 a month. Even back then, that was not a living wage. It's like, uh, it's kind of tough to get by, get by in America with 30 bucks every 24 hours today, right? Yeah, but the, the practice of tipping was not, not established here. It was popularized here on these Pullman cars. For these specific people who were working as Porters. 
Yeah, because, I mean, let's not forget that, like, the indoctrination that came along with slavery didn't just disappear overnight. And these are individuals that need work. And he is literally capitalizing on the trauma, the emotional manipulation that they've experienced, you know, through the brutal practice of slavery and kind of putting them on display as almost like, you know, it's it's just gross, like you said, Ben. I mean, it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the rest of the income over that 2750, and by the way, the Pullman porters uh, formed a union because they were regularly and often uh, robbed of the wage they were guaranteed for their labor. So the rest of their income is supposed to be made in tips. And as Matres puts it, that became the place where tipping, to your point, Matt, really began to spread. Because, think about it, Think about the geography. Train cars are going, right? The rail is going everywhere. Tipping is becoming a thing. Oh, the family and I took a trip, and of course, we lived like the Europeans. We gave a tip to our porter. You know, I don't know why I made him sound villainous and not from the U.S., but there we have it. Uh, this did not make tipping automatically popular, but I, I posit I posit that this is the patient zero of the practice. It preyed on the desperation of the have-nots, while at the same time it preyed on the aspirations of what I would call the have-a-littles, the emergent middle class. Isn't it interesting, though, how, like, you know, uh, America is, is, you know— Formed from being emancipated from, you know, the overlords that, that were, you know, the British, uh, the Europeans, and then all of a sudden Americans want to become just like their former, you know, uh, overlords. I mean, I, maybe it makes sense. I don't know. It's weird. It just seems like really counter to the idea of liberation and the idea of, you know, separating oneself from, you know, being under the yoke of an oppressive force. Then all of a sudden you become that oppressive force to others. It's just uh, very counterintuitive, I guess. But maybe it also makes perfect sense when you consider human nature and uh, the nature of people wanting to control others. Well, it, it also is establishing something really important to this American dream we're talking about, guys. If you were a really, really good porter and you were incredible at what you did and you said the right things, it was possible for you to make more money than the other porters around you, right? And in it, it preys on the competitive nature of those things, but also in the um, enterprising nature of all humans, right? Oh, I can figure out this system and if I am the best at it, I could I might actually make a good amount of money here. And I have regulars who mm -hmm. only only request me when they are riding out to Boston and so on. Yeah, you've nailed it, Matt, and it's it's strange because people I feel like we always need to point this out. We're talking about history. People were just as intelligent. It sounds like a broken record. It's a broken record because it's true. People were just as intelligent then as they are now. They just had a differing access to information. So it should come as no surprise and beat me here, Paul. A ton of people automatically knew this concept of tipping was a problematic idea. Opponents 
not just the well-to-do, we'll get to them, but opponents felt like it was a shakedown. They were saying, why are we paying for everything twice? You know, I paid for my train ticket. I got to pay this guy. I already paid for my train ticket. I got to give you money for two sandwiches when I buy one sandwich. Fun fact, <laughs> William Taft, uh, who is um, also famous for being president, uh, in 1908, a really big thing for his PR campaign was that he didn't tip the guy who cut his hair. And, uh, and later historians would go on a contemporary journalist of his time. Uh, and later historians would go on to describe him as a kind of folk patron saint of the anti-tipping crusade crusades, a crap term, but there was definitely a concentrated widespread movement against tipping. Uh, people were like, that's the thing you need to know, folks. Tipping is 100% rooted in racism in the United States. It was essentially a very lazy social mad lib. Take out the word peasant, take out the word Lord, put in the word black, put in the word white. And, um, a lot of people are against this. We mentioned TAF. We mentioned journalism. I mean, th there are great quotes we can pull from all kinds of books about this. Oh, for sure. And just really quickly, I just wanted to mention, um, I was trying to figure out what the etymology of tip was. And even that has a lot of questionable uh, results. Uh, there's a few um, sources that say it's, it was actually an acronym that stood for to ensure promptitude. Snopes untrue. says that's untrue. Yeah. Um, but it does appear in a handful of places. But uh, it also, you know, a tip would also maybe refer to a, a small bit of useful information or maybe even secret information. So maybe it sprung from that. The idea of giving someone a hot tip, you know, is something that they could take to the bank, you know, whether it be a, on a horse or whatever, some piece of information. But I, I, it's a little unclear as to where exactly tipping came from in its yeah, origins. Yeah, tip is a helpful hint comes after tipping as practice. Because, again, uh, to Matt's point, it's like it's rooted in that better than thou concept. It's like you need the financial help. So I will tell you, uh, I will, <laughs> I will give you the insider trading here. Totally. But I, it's still a little vague as to where tipping as a, as a word comes from specifically. I'm sure it's just sprang from other, you know, other maybe old English or something like that. But in any case, you, you referenced uh, some really good quotes from some, some books. Uh, Carrie Seagraves wrote a book called Tipping an American Social History of Gratuities. Um, and uh, some other folks in, in the mentions in this book, some other anti-tipping folks who all happen to be millionaires. Uh, you got your John D. Rockefeller. Uh, and Andrew Carnegie's um, who, you know, we know about these guys from their history. They didn't get rich by being generous. <laughs> they got rich by holding it uh, tight in their in their fists. Uh, and even Ralph Waldo Emerson, who had a really great, great quote. Well, great, relatively speaking, illustrative quote, let's say. Then you're going to give us an Emerson. <laughs> I don't even know what he sounds like with a name like that, though. He has to sound fancy. Oh, you guys, do you guys know Emerson? I know a bit of his. He's a he's a Lake and right? Palmer, right? <laughs> that's good, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, my favorite Emerson quote is uh, his transparent eyeball thing, which is like he's like I became a transparent eyeball, observing everything. Uh, he was a naturalist. He wrote a, 
I, I think like his real banger is Nature, which is a cool essay. It's about it's a long, it's a long essay, but uh, he's a transcendentalist. They call him. Anyway, his other quote is to the point we're making here. His quote is, "I sometimes succumb and give the dollar, yet it is a wicked dollar, which by and by I shall have the manhood to withhold." Okay. So he's saying he feels like a because he tipped. Oh, yeah, he feels he, like yeah. morally fraught. He's he been feels some like way emasculated. Yeah, worse. No, no. He's saying he he feels like he participated in an evil system by tipping. Well, I mean, we're gonna get there when we get to the modern era. That's not necessarily that far off from some people's beef with the whole system, you know, that, that, that we've landed on. But let, let's let's hold on that for a minute. Um, and this this does lead perfectly to talking about the idea of uh, tipping abolitionist campaigns. So there's a whole bunch of people that don't like this tipping thing. And in 1915, it really came to a head. This this fight against tips when there were three states, Iowa, South Carolina and Tennessee, who all passed anti-tipping laws that's pretty nuts. they hated black people <coughs> oh interesting uh there were three others washington mississippi and arkansas who already had bills of the same kind and guess what georgia was next mm-hmm but then, by 1926, uh, these anti-tipping laws were repealed um, because it had already the, the genie was sort of already out of the bottle. Like, I mean, this practice had gained so much steam and sort of become codified and really spread. Yeah, and there was a there was this huge movement, like we're talking about this um, tipping abolitionist movement, not to be confused with the abolition of slavery. Uh, <laughs> one of the big pieces here, one of the seminal pieces is a sort of, I guess you could call it a monograph, a very long, angry letter by a guy named William R. Scott. It's called the itching palm, a study of the habit of tipping in America and this rocks people. People always want to save money, right? Including restaurant owners, which we'll get to. And uh, <laughs> this this thing essentially says the millions of Americans who get their money from tips are suffering from a moral malady, uh, a phrase we referenced earlier. And that that that's a top down condemnation on these people who are trying to survive. And, and just three years later, there's a trade journal called The Mixer and Server. Uh, it's for restaurant and hotel employees. There's a guy uh, named T.O. Smith who says, you can't accuse waiters of having a, quote, itching palm. The truth is the waiter did not create the system. They are the victim of the system. And I I agree with that mm -hmm. wholeheartedly, you know? Yeah, I mean, let's think back to the porter uh, system and the whole establishing of like, how can I pay these folks as little as humanly possible? Like I, I think we said it was 27 bucks a month. Uh, it's by depending on this system of tips. So it, it inherently benefits the business owner and not the employees. And the entire time we're talking about this, 
we're not quite talking about restaurants, which is where I think the majority of Americans land when we're discussing tips to uh, to steal a, a line from the great short story author Raymond Carver. Uh, restaurants. That's what we talk about when we talk about tips. What do you say, guys? Do we go right, right to restaurants uh, or do we take a break? Yeah, let's do that. Let's take a quick break and return with more tips about tipping. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop. Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we have returned. Uh, so eventually tipping becomes closely associated with restaurants as it does in the modern day. Uh, before we do that, though, what what are we? I, I know everybody wants to. All of us listening today probably want to hear this. What's the weirdest situation you run into with tipping? What like what's the weirdest time you were expected to give a tip? I, I definitely I got a massage one time and I thought that I was tipping appropriately. I think I gave like twenty five percent, and then the person like legitimately guilt tripped me into leaving a good bit more than that. Like I felt very cornered. Um, 
So that wasn't cool. And I thought I was doing right. But again, sometimes I think for different services, different things are expected. Uh, and it's just not very clear. And I thought I was doing right by this person. I was not trying to be cheap in any way, shape or form. But, you know, I was kind of called out. So that was super awkward. I've heard stories of uh, servers having to run after customers, you know, like chase them out the door and say, what gives, you know, that'd be awkward as hell on, on both on both ends. Ben, what's your weirdest tipping story? Ooh. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll get to it. Uh, I guess to to be completely honest, maybe the weirdest tipping story I have, I was in a, a different place, not the U.S., and um, I was kind of a situation where you had a fixer, and I had a, um, a fixer. We had an agreed-upon rate, and we were, we were hanging out, and the person that I was with, uh, they didn't ask for a tip, but they got involved with someone else and they did something untoward and it required, I don't even know if you could call it a tip. It, it required maybe what you could call a make good, which sounds so unhelpfully vague, but that's as far as I could go with it. I think uh, the story was as vague as you could get, man. That was good. I yeah. like it. No, it's true. It's true. To uh, it's a story to protect the uh, protect the folks involved. But it was um, basically we essentially what we had to do was uh, not we weren't tipping in just cash. We were uh, also tipping in food and a ride. Very strange situation. Not your typical Applebee's. Not an Applebee's at all. But let's get to restaurants. Uh, all right. We got minimum wage in the U.S., right? And and people go back and forth on that. Some people hate the idea of the federal government dictating a minimum wage. Uh, in 1942, the Supreme Court made this ruling that said, if you're an employee of a place, you have an exclusive right to the tips that are given to you. The owners of the establishment cannot take that money that is given specifically to you, and they cannot force you to do what's called tipping out, to share your um, your tips with the rest of the staff. Uh, and even before that, sorry, I, I'm losing my timeline here. In 1938, it was the New Deal that uh, instituted the first federal minimum wage law. Minimum wage in 1938 was set at 25 cents an hour. Sick. <laughs> it's, it's sick for 38. I mean, it's definitely, I, I think it's also very, um, I, I think it's incredibly ethical and moral that they always called it the minimum wage. There's a very different universe where the U.S. has like a maximum wage, which is never going to happen. That's not the dream, to Noel's point. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Who's not included in that, uh, in that New Deal legislation in the 1930s? Who doesn't get the minimum wage in 38? People that rely on tips. I guess uh, restaurants or workers of restaurants. Uh, yeah, yeah, restaurant employees don't get included in federal minimum wage. Restaurant owners are, I, yeah, restaurant owners, to your point, are also not uh, not uh, included in this. 
they, unlike many other industries, don't have to pay that federally mandated 25 cents an hour. This, in practice, codified the idea that you're only paying your workers through tips, which means that you're not really paying your workers, right? It means that the customers are paying for the labor of the people that you were quote unquote employing. I mean, and this evolved, of course. I'm a little foggy on maybe how it started because it did ultimately get to where this just affected, quote unquote, tipped employees, you know, as opposed to a blanket, uh, you know, kind of rule surrounding restaurant workers. So I'm imagining initially, Ben, this would have included everybody from dishwashers to, you know, kitchen staff to whomever, not just people that were serving customers. Yeah, it's nuts. Like the we know. um we know it's tricky, and I love that you bring up the phrase tipped workers, right? So uh, fast forward 1966, Congress creates this thing called tip credit. A lot of us who work in the service industry are going to be aware of this one. What, what is tip credit? What is it? What does it do? Yeah, I mean, it's basically just uh, essentially theoretically brings up that, uh, you know, tipped wage, that tipped hourly wage. Um, it supplements it uh, officially through, you know, the amount of tips that these individuals make. And I believe that there is a regulation in place that if at the end of the year uh, the person has not made what would amount to that federal minimum wage, then the employers are supposed to supplement it out of their own pocket. But there are also ways around that, of course. So, you know, the it's essentially bringing up, you know, their wage to match whatever the federal minimum wage is. But again, only on paper in theory. How often uh, how often do we think uh, how many times out of 10 do we think a person who probably doesn't have the capital to push a case through court can fight that? Oh, never. I mean, unless there's some, you know, uh, guardian angel pro bono lawyer that's, uh, you know, working for social justice that takes up their cause or some sort of, you know, um, class action suit. But no, an individual, it's never going to happen. Not only can they not afford it, they can't afford to take the time off of work to even deal with it. If, if they're fighting for a livable wage, then they're struggling and they're definitely not going to be able to, to take on City Hall in that way. It becomes more complicated too. the federal minimum wage for what is called a tipped employee is right now two dollars and 13 cents per hour. Other states like individual states in the union have taken steps to heighten that. But the 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 not the ceiling, the opposite of the ceiling, the floor is two thirteen, assuming tips and conveniently ignoring things like tip out, things like workers' rights and so on. I mean, but like here's the other thing. Full disclosure, when Matt Noel and I go to restaurants, we tip. Uh, and many waiters, many servers, uh, professionals at high-end establishments, they often seem to prefer tipping, or at least there are many who do seem to prefer tipping because at a high-end establishment, that can translate to a higher monthly income. You know, I like we know no shortage of people 
who became um, managers at some sort of establishment and made less money than they did as a bartender. You know, what about the folks who are working at diners, regular restaurants, fast food, to earlier point, no, dive bars? Uh, what happens to them? Like, how how does this translate to the American dream? And obviously, yes, some restaurants in the U.S. don't accept tips. They are usually higher end. Yeah, and some restaurants have attempted to get rid of tips completely. Uh, it's been tried many times, often unsuccessfully, but some places just decided to do it anyway, no matter you know what the economic costs are to their restaurant or you know to their wait staff. And we've got a, a really good example here. Yeah, there's a restaurant in Berkeley, California called Chez Panisse, uh, celebrity chef Alice Waters uh, joint. Um, and they have just a kind of one line item fixed service charge for every, you know, customer uh, that gets divvied up amongst the whole staff, which includes the kitchen, the wait staff, the cooks, the, the you know, bus staff, uh, dishwashers, all of that. Um, it's essentially just a more codified kind of form of like a, a pool kind of situation. And interestingly enough, too, California is one state that doesn't use the 213 an hour uh, figure. They they pay minimum wage at, at minimum uh, in addition to tips. So, you know, but also California's got one of the highest costs of living anywhere in the United States. And it's also important to point, point out that 213 an hour that we're talking about, that doesn't get adjusted for inflation. That doesn't get adjusted for cost of living increases. It's just static unless a state takes it upon itself to do something about it like, like California has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and none of that's going to fix the uh, ticking time bomb of the San Andreas Fault. Different story. Uh, so, Seagrave, the author we mentioned earlier, uh, notes a cool irony I really like. Tipping has faded away in many parts of Europe because uh, they said, why don't we just add a service charge? Customers aren't obliged to tip. Why don't we pay the people who live in our country a wage that allows them to live in our country. Beautiful idea. Uh, the local government of a place outside of Atlanta uh, called the city of Decatur could also take that under advisement. You know what I mean? Uh, so, but there's a conspiracy here. It's pretty self-evident. The grift is this. Restaurants can essentially pass part of their cost directly onto the consumer in a way that inherently victim blames, a way that blames the worker for circumstances quite often beyond their control. They've weaponized those social mores. They've weaponized peer pressure to exploit a financial cheat code. Now, arguably, look, there are a ton of restaurant owners out there, some listening today, who would prefer not to use the tipping phenomenon. But as we know, restaurants are an intense cutthroat business. And a place with higher than average prices is going to have a tough time making it through the year. You know, we, we, we have to, I'm just saying we have to be careful not to paint this group as a monolith, uh, a cabal of fat cats. That's for, it couldn't be more untrue. It couldn't be further from the truth. They, like their employees and their customers, they're laboring under the yoke of this intergenerational conspiracy, this system that incentivizes, often in practice requires participation, even when the overall effects we know can damage society in the long term. 
Yeah, I mean, especially when it comes to smaller, you know, locally owned businesses, you know, where the margins can be very slim. And like you said, the competition, very uh, stiff. Well, what about at a huge, I don't know, upscale burger joint? I don't know what you call it. What is that called? Fast, casual mm-hmm, burger true. restaurant kind of thing? Approachable, fine dining. Well, take Shake Shack, for instance. Like, that's a pretty nice little burger restaurant. It's a huge chain. And this guy, Danny Meyer, who's the CEO of Union Square Hospitality, who, you know, owns Shake Shack, also places like Gramercy Tavern and the Modern, like more upscale restaurants. Back in 2015, he wanted to do exactly what we're talking about here. Get rid of the, the tips thing. And instead of making the customer pay more, you know, out of this weird kind of obligation to tip a server, just pay more for the food that you're going to buy for coming in and don't do it as a service charge. Just work those tips basically into the food. So increase your food prices by 21%. I've got a quote from him from all things considered in 2015 quote, the average American restaurant goer leaves the exact same tip irrespective of the service they receive. And unfortunately, none of those tips that you leave in a restaurant may may be shared with the full team, i.e. the cooks, the dishwashers, prep cooks, butchers, etc. So by incorporating everything in the menu prices and therefore having it be the restaurant's responsibility to pay everybody a fair wage, we think we have the opportunity to make a great place to work for everybody, not just servers, but also for our cooks. And this is a response because it, it is commendable. And it's a response because some of his servers were making so much money, but his cooks in the back didn't get to see any of that money, or even if they were tip pooling, they would get to see a percentage of that money, right? So tried to put this into all of his restaurants, and he did. A bunch of other restaurateurs followed suit in 2015 and 2016. There was even a logo, guys, of one of these, uh, what do you call open source logos for a non-tipping establishment that was generated. And it looks awesome. It was gratuity free establishment and it has a little logo on it with an x and an o Uh, always use the word free if you want support (laughs) for a cause in the u.s yeah oh yeah sure and that was a another guy named andrew tarlow another restaurateur person who you know has a like an empire basically trying to make this thing happen but guess what it only it only lasted about two years a little less than two years because all All of those establishments realized, oh, uh, people don't like this. And it goes back to the psychology thing we talked about before. You look at a menu and, you know, you see a bunch of $30 menu items instead of $20 menu items or $20 menu items instead of $10 menu items. And your brain just goes, oh, this chicken is really overpriced. I don't think we're (laughs) going to come here again. Uh it's really interesting, man, because, you know, we, we've been talking about how old this this tradition is, and we have gotten to a point where we just kind of expect it. Um, and we'll, we'll get into some of the kind of like ramping up of this whole thing that's happened and, and gotten us to where we are now. But, you know, it, it is that illusion where if you see the lower price on the menu and you feel like it's up to you to add that little extra on top instead of it being mandatory, you, you're feeling like you're getting a better deal. And then, But then if they roll it all in there and then all 
of a sudden your burger's like, you know, $5 more. Some people might balk at that. And also, I'm sure that the wait staff didn't care for this in particular because it removes that level of uh, a competition. It removes that level of like, well, if I'm being the best, why should this other person who's not as good as me get what I'm getting? And I, I do think it's unfair for if you've ever worked in a kitchen, I mean, those people bust their ass. And to actually get that food out to make it where the server is being efficient and delivering their food and it looks good and it's out on time. That's just as worthy of tips as, as the, the, the public facing part. Um, it, it is a brutal uh, job to work in a kitchen. Again, they're getting paid more than that two fifteen an hour, but not, not, a, not a crazy amount more. I mean, it depends on the restaurant, I suppose, and, and where you are in the hierarchy, but it's, it's complicated and it's complicated because of this really fraught history. It was all established for really messed up reasons, and now we're kind of stuck with it, it feels like. I don't know. It goes back to what Ben said earlier about moving up to being a manager from a server and how in order to make that move, you would have to take a 25% wage cut overall to become a manager because the server, if they're very good, can make bank at a, uh, you know, a more expensive restaurant. I want to point out, by the way, if you really want to make money off tips, become a politician in the United States. I said it. It's a f-ing problem. Read our book. Lobbying is bribery. Whatever. Yeah. Think about it. Like in the in Europe, the tipping question became a question for economic experts. People uh, in the dismal science divorced from ideology, hopefully, if they're doing the jobs right. In the U.S., this is a question that is tackled by politicians, powerful lobbies, and their masters. Like, let's get to the modern day, right? Okay, what can or should be done? When we look at the stats, we see the foundations buried, not very deeply, of the original conspiracy. 2021, 41% of tipped workers were people of color. Still 2021, two-thirds of tipped workers are women, women-identifying individuals. Excuse me, 37 of those 66% of people are also mothers. They have children depending on them, and they, in turn, are depending on these tips. Look, during the pandemic, things were going nuts. American diners uh, noted something that started to be called tipflation or uh, tip creep right? And began experiencing what was called tip fatigue. You would go to a humble takeout joint. You would uh, use that touchscreen that you mentioned earlier, Noel, and all of a sudden you would see a field that said suggested tip 15 or 18 or 20 or even 25 or 30 percent. The easiest response in that social situation when you are being observed is to agree, is to just hit the button, you know, do your little diddly boop, your little John Hancock, and then you're off on your merry way with your, you know, your, uh, what's a weird thing you buy at a touch screen uh, with your, your Duncan, Duncan coffee. That's the popular one. Is that the one? Okay. The really like candied coffee. Um, and look, we're careful. They're a sponsor. Well, some people love candied coffee. Not everybody's a dirtbag like me, but uh, but uh, we are being really U.S. centric here. We want to make sure we acknowledge tipping, bribes, stuff like that exist in some form or another in many, many other places. I would argue tipping is not bribery, honestly, because, again, these people are working for this and they are 
busting their ass. And if you've ever worked in the service industry, you know very well that your job is probably more difficult than the job of the people who are coming to your establishment. Like in in countries with local corruption, it's so nuts, man. You go to a government institution, you're expected to pay a bribe. Imagine going to the DMV or the DDS and they're like, yeah, we could give you a license plate, you know, we could. And what, gotta, what about this <laughs> Hamilton? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. What about this DMB power card? Uh, if you live in the U.S., you've seen this tip creep firsthand, right? Maybe even earlier today. We talked about it at the front. Uh, here's why it's happening. It's super easy on those touchscreen points of service or POS. It's super easy to flip on a, or off a switch that turns that field on. And quite often, the money from those tips, it's not going to the person who made your coffee. It, it, it isn't. It's going to the owner of the franchise, right? Uh, and this means that, of course, you're going you're gonna to feel like you want to help people. You're also going to feel like someone is taking money because you might be a victim of this of this system, but well, Ben, there are many restaurateurs like Danny Meyer, like a lot of the people that attempted to do this before. That if you if you are in the system where you're making that tip and it's going to the company, right, the restaurant itself, many of them are attempting to redistribute those tips in a you know in a way that does benefit everybody in equitable I just, fashion. Yeah, yeah. I just I don't want I, a lot of a lot of the people who run these restaurants as businesses are not trying to prey on the people who work in them, right? They are attempting to make it better for everybody. It's just strange that there's there aren't a lot of state and federal regulations that compel somebody to do that good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost like the uh, free market is a, another religion. And if you poke toward it objectively, you see the difference between religion and a solid economic system. And that's why I love that you're saying, I love you're reiterating this, Matt, because we said earlier, restaurant owners are not some monolithic cabal, you know, like we have to be honest. Next time you're at a restaurant, the bill arrives. You decide not to tip someone where you get to lecture them about the racist origin of tipping, the class system of tipping, which is actually absolutely true. Don't do that. Odds are the server may not know the conspiratorial origin story of tipping and odds are they're working a very demanding job on their feet for hours with no real breaks almost certainly no health insurance uh yeah i I just feel like because we're in the system i feel like it is appropriate to tip people and maybe tip more than is expected if you can afford to go out to a restaurant help people you know, I mean, if you don't feel right about tipping for something in a certain instance, then your opinion, your money is your own, but don't be high and mighty about it. Like, what can we do? How can we fix this system? Have we made an okay case about this? Like, it's it's deeper than one person, right? Other than George Pullman. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation. I'm going to shout out Catherine Campo Bowen, who wrote for Eater in September 2020, she wrote a piece called Gratuity Still Not Included, and I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in this subject read that. She's got a quote from another restaurateur named David Stockwell, 
who runs a place called co runs a place with his wife called fawn in Brooklyn, New York. And he, he had this to say, which I think kind of speaks to the whole problem here, the whole problem with tipping in the U S he says, quote, so many times that you're operating as a business, you realize, okay, my politics and my ideals are one thing, but what's the priority here? End quote. And by priority, he's speaking to how do I, as a restaurant owner, stay in business? How do I keep all of these employees here? What what are the hard choices I have to make in order to continue on, right? And prosper as long as well as everybody else who's working for me. And in the end, he's like, We America, the people who visit my restaurant in Brooklyn. I've got to keep tipping as it is in order to keep my servers here in order to keep people coming to my restaurant and paying lower prices at the table until they, you know, decide on their own to make a tip because there's this thing that runs inside all of us and it's, we don't like to be told what to do. None of us like to be told what to do. And if you're basically told, Oh, you're going to, you have to pay more or you have to tip or you have to do this. It's not the same as, I make the free will decision to leave a tip to this server of this amount because I feel this way about how my service was. There's just such a different, there's two very different experiences. And very oh, yeah, I mean, psychological I mean, trends. Totally. I mean, the whole idea of tipping for good service is basically a thing of the past, you know, and unless you're at a certain level of, of economic uh, fluidity, let's just say, where you can really flex hard, you know, maybe even flex on the person that you're eating with. There's a whole joke on Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David goes to, to lunch with Jason Alexander and he, he tells Jason Alexander, you got to tell me what your tip is so we can match. And Jason rejects this wholeheartedly. He's like, I'm not telling you what I'm tipping. That's between between me and the server, and then Larry gets sneaky and goes behind his back and figures out what it is, and it's way higher than what Larry was doing because Jason wants to be the like the the big man, you know. He wants to be the 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 you know between the two of them. He is flexing, um, but outside of that level of opulence, I mean, no. If you don't leave somebody a t- even if they did a horrible job you are breaking what has now become this mega codified, you know, social norm. You can also make a sandwich at home. Also which true. I, which I know sounds very, uh, very weird. But you know what? We're coming up in the world. I'm drinking out a regular drink glass now instead of a mason jar. You know, I, uh, whatever. Uh, the question is, what can we do? What can individuals do? People hate hearing this, but it is very much true. What you can do to combat this system, to make it more equitable, is write to your local politicians. Uh, you may not be able to afford to bribe them or lobby them or whatever it's called, but talk about the fundamental right of minimum wage to be applied to service workers who are excluded from this mission-critical law. While you're at it, you can also push for more inclusive health care. So folks in this country have a fighting chance of getting in and out of a hospital without facing bankruptcy and financial ruin. And you know what? Fellow conspiracy realists, bonus points, if you can help us and our fellow listeners find some solutions. What do you think? Is there a way to unravel and remove this conspiracy? Should the U.S. be like Japan, where tipping is somewhat culturally offensive? Should it be somewhere in the middle? Should tipping in its uniquely U.S. form continue? And if so, 
How do we ensure the fundamental rights of people who depend upon this system for their survival? I don't know. These are big questions. We, we think somebody should give us a call or find us online. Oh, yeah, you can do all those things. If you want to find us online, we exist at the Handle Conspiracy Stuff on YouTube, where there's new, fun video content coming up every week. Uh, also, Facebook, where we have a group called Here's Where It Gets Crazy. You can join in on the conversation there or on Twitter. Uh, we're Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram and TikTok. We have a phone number. It is one Call us. You got three minutes. Give us a cool nickname and let us know if we can use your message on the air. That's it. If you don't want to leave a message, why not instead send us a good old-fashioned email? We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God. We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.